0: I want to talk to you for the next three weeks about the Trinity. That's a word that we're all familiar with. We've heard it before. We, we've pondered it. We have struggled to understand it. It's a word that, i, I, I got to be honest with you, and, and I've I, I struggled with this for years, but I, I've come to the belief, and, and I think this is true, that it is it, impossible to comprehend. It's impossible to comprehend the Trinity. Now, let me me explain why. The doctrine of this Trinity is very simple to state. Here's how it goes. There's only one God. God is three persons, and each person is fully God. Now, that seems fairly easy until we begin to dissect it and take a close look at it. And when we do that, we're going to discover how complex this doctrine really is. Oh, we come, up with, we come up with clever ways to describe it, and they kind of make sense to us when we first think about it. You know, We say things like, oh, the Trinity is like an egg. It's got a shell, it's got a white, and it's got a yolk. And other times we say, oh, the Trinity the is like water. I've got this figured out, because sometimes water is liquid, sometimes it's vapor, sometimes it's solid. And they're all valiant attempts, but they all fall woefully short of what the Trinity is really about. When I sat in my ordination council a number of months ago, one of the questions posed to me by a professor from a seminary, I was shaking in my boots, he said, Describe the Trinity. And I went, oh, uh, and now I'm thinking, I've got to come up with something. And I, I pondered it for a moment, I looked down at the table and I said, y- you know what, I, I it, it, it's beyond comprehension. I, I can't describe it. And so the moderator looked at me and said, well, give it a try, John. And now I've got beads of sweat coming out of my forehead and sitting in front of 12 guys that are way above my pay grade. And finally, I said, I I can't. And the moderator said, very good. That's the right answer. (laughs) And it's beyond our comprehension. Now, let me me explain why in some detail. There's only one God. Okay, we get that. That's part of what the Jews call the Shema. Uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Love him with all his strength and all of your might. Okay, that's fine. God is three persons. Uh, that's getting a little bit harder because now it sounds a little bit like there are three gods, not one, but, you know, one has to go with the other. And and what what this tells us is that our, our one true God is made up of three uniquely gifted and uniquely identified persons. Okay, maybe maybe we can stretch our minds a little bit and kind of get our arms around that and 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 embrace that idea. Maybe, you know, we're thinking maybe it's some kind of council or something of equals, or maybe, oh, maybe it's like that movie I saw, The Band of Brothers, one for all, and all for one. You know what, those are not good descriptions either. They, they, they they, they don't work, and honestly, at this point, most of us pretty much believe that that, well, they kind of work, and we can figure this out. It's that last line of the doctrine that challenges our human reason. Gives us headaches if we think about it too long. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. That means that the members of the Trinity are each one of them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are fully God. All the time. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and that idea overwhelms us. It causes our brains to overload. Each member of the Trinity is fully God with all of God's attributes, all of His nature, all of His power, and all of His authority. And and the list just goes on and on. anything you can think about God can be attributed to each member of the Trinity. And our minds don't work like that. So we're going to explore this for the next three weeks. This week our sermon is God the Father. Next week's sermon is God the Son. The week after will be God the Holy Spirit, September 4th. But rather than looking at the individual members of the Trinity, we've done that here before, uh, we're going to get up front and personal with how the Trinity functions. We're going to look very closely at the nature of this totally unique, mind-bending relationship that exists within what we call the Godhead. So don't let the titles fool you. We're not going to have one week talking about God, one week talking about uh, the Son, one week talking about the Holy Spirit. They're there to remind you that each one of them is God. We're gonna see how the persons of the Trinity work with each other. And then we'll take a look each week at what that should mean to us as Christians, because uh, it sounds like a doctrinal dissertation. It's going to sound a little bit academic, but I can assure you that it has a profound impact on how we function in the real world. So this week we're gonna look at how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equals as persons in the Godhead. And I hope to demonstrate to you the equality of the members of the Trinity. Next week, we'll look at the mission of each person. And on the third week, we'll look at the total unity and union that the Trinity has within itself. So we're going to look at a lot of scripture. You can follow along in your Bibles on your own, but there's going to be a lot of turning. I provided a handout that'll have all the scripture references we're using today uh, for each of the points we're making. Let's just get started. The Son and the Holy Spirit are equal to God the Father. They're equal in eternity from time immemorial in in the beginning, from all the way through time, through all of eternity. They're equal in eternity and nature and status. Within the Trinity, the Father is the head. Now think about this for a second. He's first among equals. The Son and the Holy Spirit do the Father's will, glorifying Him and making Him known, and the Holy Spirit glorifies and makes known the Son. Now that kind of makes sense to us. It doesn't sound very much like equality, though, does it? Because we all have this tendency to think that the head has all the power and authority, don't we? That's how we look at it. I think this is one mistake we may make in a lot of our homes. Thinking the head of the home is one who possesses the power and authority, who's in control. Well, I want to take a look at how this works in the Trinity. First, understand this: within the structure of the Trinity, with the Father as a head, Scripture tells us that the Son is equal to the Father. The Son is equal to the Father. Now, uh, John 5:18 says this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus Christ, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus is not calling God the father of everyone. He's like, all our fathers. He's describing a unique relationship he has with the father there in that, that verse in John. The Jews would have understood Jesus to say that he was of the same nature as the Father, that he was one with the Father. Now, Jesus makes that very clear five verses later in John 5, 22 and 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, "'Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him.'" So, honoring the Son and the Father are the same thing. It denotes equality. Furthermore, the Son judges not the Father. Hold on to that idea for just a second as we listen to John 8, 16. "'Yet even if I do judge,' this is Jesus speaking, My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Huh. Well, that sounds a little bit confusing. It's not the Father who judges, but me. It's not I who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. You know, it's only confusing if you're trying to figure out what the difference between the Father and the Son is. What Jesus is trying to say is that they're the same, yet he identifies them as two persons. Now, there are a few more references in your outline. You can take a look at them. I want to take a look at Paul's letter to Colossians, chapter 2, where we can find the defining statement concerning the nature of Christ and his position in the Trinity and how he relates to the Father. Colossians 2, 9. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hmm. Now, this, of course, is where we get the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He was the son of man. He's been called Adam many times. And he was the son of God. He represented man in the same manner that Adam did, But Jesus undid the wrong that Adam did, and he was able to do that. He was able to undo the wrong that Adam did because he was perfect and holy and carried within him the nature and essence of God himself. Unless Jesus was fully man, he could not have died in our place. Unless he was fully God, he didn't have the capability to forgive our sins. He didn't have the capability to redeem men. He didn't have the authority to gain victory over sin and death. Don't, don't let this get by you. Jesus wasn't a man at times and a God at other times. He didn't phase in and phase out of, of who he was. He was always fully man and at all times he was fully God. He was not God's tool. He's not God's implement. And although he obeyed, obeyed God, he's not God's servant. He was in all ways equal to God. Well, John... How do you explain Philippians 2.6, what it says about Jesus? And what it says is, who, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now, we've got a problem of interpretation here. Another one of those frequently misunderstood texts. Look at it closely. It starts out with, though he was in the form of God. So he was already in the form, in the nature, in the essence of God. And the word for grasp here means to take by force, to seize. So I'm going to give you the kavakus Paraphrase on this verse right here Jesus didn't have to reach out and seize equality with God because he already had it. That's what the verse means. So we see that the Son is equal with the Father. And you, you can see this in other places, it's in almost every greeting to every epistle in the Bible where Jesus and the Father are mentioned as recipients of glory and honor and praise as equal. You can see it in the doxologies that appear throughout the New Testament. It's all there. Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father, are equals. I want to take a look at the Holy Spirit for a few minutes and how he fits in here. Because the Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There's a ton of stuff in here. It's just part. It, it's it's part of of uh, the end of a book. It's like the greeting is the beginning. But there's a ton of stuff. Now, and this one takes a little bit of thinking. But there's equality in here as well. Paul has just chastised the Corinthian church in chapter twelve of Second Corinthians, and and. He leaves no room for pride or quarrels among them. He's trying to bring unity in the church. And he uses this phrase to express the unity in the, Holy, in, in the Trinity as well. The Corinthians have been redeemed. How have they been redeemed? By a work of Trinitarian unity, by a work of Trinitarian equality. They've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, which has allowed them to experience the love of God and leads them into fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have a part in this. And we have the entirety of the Godhead functioning as it has always functioned from beyond the beginning of time, from before the foundations of the earth, using godly attributes in harmony and equality with each other to bring glory to God and salvation to men. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in complete equality with God and the Son. I think this is important. I think this is important because sometimes we kind of give short shift to the Holy Spirit. We need to see Him as equal with the Father and the Son. We see the same thing in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, is Jesus speaking, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we always focus a lot on the go, therefore, part of the commission. That's the one where we're going to send everybody out to be missionaries, and we're going to go out into the world to, to proclaim the gospel. And, and you know what? That's a very good thing. That's something we need to keep in mind, because that's the mission of the church. But I want you to look at that verse on how the believers are to be baptized. It's in the name, in the singular, the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not too much of a problem if we view the name as most Westerners do, as a label that we wear, something on our name tag when somebody doesn't recognize us. But when we start thinking about a name the way the Eastern mind perceives a name, as being the nature, the character of the person, of being everything that embodies this person. Look at what this verse tells us. It says to baptize. Now, we've talked about this before as well, and I think a lot of times when we hear the word baptize, we think about the sacrament. We think about the the sacrament of baptism, which is very valuable to the church if you're a believer You should be baptized. That's kind of how it works. And if you want to talk about that with me later, I'll be more than happy to spend some time with you. But when a Jew heard baptized, in particular here at the inception of the church, he's not thinking sacrament. He's thinking immersion. He's thinking soaked completely, covered from head to foot, every inch of the body. So he's he's talking about immersing soaking disciples in what? In the name, in the character and nature of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one nature, one essence. Three persons in one God. Three equal persons in one God. We see the unity, the equality, and the harmony of the Trinity in Peter's writings as well. First Peter one, two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's a description of how they work together. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies so that the believer can be obedient. And the result of all that puts God's grace on display. Without equal parts of equal works on behalf of all three, the whole plan of redemption falls apart. The Holy Spirit is always portrayed as being equal to the Father and to the Son. And by the way, he's not a ghost. I know that traditionally a lot of people look at him that way. He's a full fledged member of the Trinity and as such we do not designate him with an it but a he is a he. So I I, I hope what we've been able to establish so far is to get you thinking. And as we continue in the next few weeks we'll see that when we look at all of the, the individual members of the Trinity and the parts that they play, we'll see that there's some structure in there as well. There, there's indeed some structure, but we'll see that the way we interpret that structure, if we're not very careful, can lead to problems, a lot of which can be avoided if we strive to understand how the members of the Trinity glorify each other. That's what we're going to talk about next, how they glorify each other. Now, if we're going to talk about that, we should understand what glorify means because we can over-spiritualize glorification. And it's certainly a spiritual supernatural event, but here's what it is in its essence, according to Spiro Zodiades, the great Greek scholar. It means to, listen, it means to recognize, honor, praise, invest with dignity giving any, anyone esteem or honor, but as in putting them in an honorable position. Now, listen to that carefully. Recognize honor, praise, and invest with dignity. That's what it means to glorify someone. It's an important definition for us to remember. And you need to write it down somewhere. You need to make a note of it. You need to keep it on file. Because it is the key to how the three persons of the Trinity relate to each other. Scripture tells us how the Son glorifies the Father. Jesus brings glory to the Father just by being who He is. Just by being Jesus Christ. Romans 16, 27 to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The glory that God receives comes through the Son. But look at this in John fourteen thirteen. whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So, God is not only glorified through Jesus Christ, He is glorified in Jesus Christ. In everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus does, God is glorified. Note this. God doesn't just get the glory. God is glorified in Christ. In other words, whatever glorifies Christ glorifies God. Paul tells us in Philippians, 2.11, uh, and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In First Peter, we see this, First Peter 4.11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jude tells us this. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. They both say the same thing. Did you hear that? Not only the glory that the Father receives comes through Jesus Christ, but listen, the majesty, the dominion, and the authority do as well. And they always have. So... Our Bible is replete with references to the Father being glorified by the Son. Now, I think we get that. But listen to this. We also see that the Father and Son glorify one another. John's Gospel lays it out perfectly clearly. In 17.1, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Let that sink in for a moment or two. Think about that. Roll it over in your head. Try try to make that fit in with the typically common definition of how the Trinity functions. The idea that one is in charge over the other or that one is bigger or more important than the other or that one has more power and influence than the other. That kind of template just doesn't work with what we're reading here. And everything we've heard so far, the Father and the Son mutually glorify each other. Now, John quotes Jesus as saying, Father, glorify your Son, He's saying, Father, honor, praise, and invest with dignity your Son, that he may honor, praise, and invest with dignity you. Early in the book of John, we hear Jesus say this, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. And again in John 13, we read this, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You've got to kind of trace that one through because it, it gets a little confusing as well. But well, what it says is when the Son is glorified, the Father's glorified. But we also see that God will glorify himself in glorifying Jesus, in glorifying the Son. There's that that oneness between the Father and the Son. Again, the equality. Again, what happens to one happens to the other. What one does to the other, he does to and for himself. Not only that, but the Father and the Son Share the same glory, and they've shared it from before the beginning of time. Listen to the words of Jesus again in John 17. This is verse 4. I glorified you on earth, he's speaking to God, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Clearly, the Son and Father glorify each other. But what about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son as well. The Spirit honors, praises, and invests with dignity the Father and the Son. Again, we go back to John's Gospel in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority... But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, again, another confusing passage if we're not thinking Trinitarian, if we're not thinking about equals, if we're not not thinking about the three-person God. This verse tells us that the Spirit does not work independently from the Father and the Son. He does not speak with an authority that is apart from the authority of the the Father and the Son. What He hears from the Father and the Son is what He speaks. In this case, hearing means to comprehend, means to know. In other words, the Spirit will proclaim what He knows with the same authority that the Father and the Son has, and what He knows is what the Father and the Son know. They all know the same thing. They speak with the same authority. They glorify each other. Looking at John chapter 15, we hear this in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me. Now, the spirit of truth, if you take a look at the, at the verse, you'll notice that the spirit has a capital S on it. It means that the spirit mentioned here is a person. He's a helper, and the word helper is capitalized as well. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. He comes out of the Father. He is one with the Father. He has the essence of the Father. He's the same as the Father. The Spirit will do what? He will bear witness about the Son. He will honor and praise and invest with dignity the Son. He will glorify the Son. Now John's not the only one that talks about this because Paul weighs in on this issue as well. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the Spirit brings glory to the Father and the Son. But remember this. The Spirit is one with the Father and Son. The Spirit is equal to the Father and Son. God is three persons. The Spirit is one of them. So the work the Spirit does in glorifying the other two persons of the Trinity also glorifies the Spirit. Okay, you got all that? <laughs> here's... here's. Here's what we've seen so far. I know this is heavy stuff. Here's what we've seen so far. The doctrine of the Trinity is as follows. There's only one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is equality in that Godhead. Three equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is equal with the Father. That was our first point. Second one is the Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father and the Son glorify each other. And the Spirit glorifies the Father and Son. So if you've heard nothing so far, you should hear that they're all working together to bring glory to the Godhead. Amen? So, so what? (laughs) I mean, what does this have to do with you and me going out that door today and living life in the gospel? You know, when we start thinking about points of doctrine, it's easy to go, oh, that's that doctrine theology stuff, and that's really great to study, but it doesn't have any practical application. What does that mean to me? Buckle your seatbelt. Yeah, that's some heady stuff. But we'd be making a huge mistake if we thought that any point of doctrine was just some academic study. Because it does have impact on how we live our life. First, first, it it impacts how we perceive each member of the Trinity. There are a whole lot of churches in town. And each church has a different flavor. You know, there there are a whole lot of godly churches in town. We did a joint funeral service with the bridge. You know, we don't really line up with the bridge real well, uh, doctrinally, uh, but they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, They love each other. They love God. And we're all going to be spending a lot of time together in heaven. Uh, Pastor Greg Hackett's a fantastic guy. We had another funeral service, uh, memorial service the day before with people from other churches that, that are just as safe, just as godly as we are. We have different perceptions of things. So when we look at this doctrine of the Trinity, we see that some churches maybe emphasize God a little bit more, some maybe emphasize Jesus a little bit more, some maybe emphasize the Holy Spirit a little bit more. We would be wrong to overemphasize one over the other. We would be wrong to, to make our relationship with God about the Holy Spirit and all that He can do for us. We would be wrong to make Uh, to relegate the Spirit to someone who functioned a long time ago and really doesn't have any impact on our lives here today. We would be wrong to make our relationship with God about Jesus and His love and nothing else. There's all manner of teaching out there that will tell you, well, it's Jesus plus nothing. All you need is Jesus. That's not what we heard in this look at the Trinity We would be wrong to think that the relationship in the Trinity has anything to do with power and authority and control. Remember this. Paul tells us we are to emulate Christ. Now, most of us as believers take that pretty seriously. Most of us really do want to be like Christ, want to be conformed to His image, want to be made like Him. But I think if... If we think that the relationships in the Trinity are to be like the relationships in our lives, by the way, they are. They are supposed to be like the relationships in our lives. If we correctly think that, that's a good thing. But if we incorrectly think that that, those relationships are about authority and control and power, we're gonna have a problem. Because that's not what we just saw in the Trinity. We're going to miss the truth about the Trinity. We're going to miss the richness that God wants us to have in the way we relate to each other. Because that's how the relation in the Trinity is. It's rich, it's beautiful, it's deep. He wants us to have the same thing so that we can put on display the Trinity to a world that needs to have richness and hope. Because if we truly understand the Trinity is made up of three equal persons, all of whom are striving to glorify each other, then we will understand, brothers and sisters, that we are equals, striving to bring glory to each other. Did you catch that? The Trinity's our model. Three equals bringing glory to each other. We are equals bringing glory to each other. We are equals, listen, who serve each other. Who serve each other. That's what we're seeing here. If we get that, if we get that, then all sorts of things start falling into place much easier than we thought. We begin to grasp what it means to treat those around us as more important than ourselves. We begin to understand what it means to love one another as we love ourselves, as God loved us. We, believe, we, we begin to understand what it means to strive to, to glorify each other rather than to control and influence each other. Well, that's a big picture. Let me tell you something. Nowhere is this more important than in our homes. Nowhere is this more important than in our homes. Where I believe a lot of damage has been done by misinterpreting how the Trinity relates to each other. By trying to portray headship as control and authority. When in reality, what we've seen here today is about glorifying each other. It's about being glorified by each other. If we, if we allow that to sink in, then the father, the, the husband of the household, as the head of the family, and he is the head of the family, but he works to honor, praise, and invest with dignity his wife and his children. He lives to glorify her. Paul says it. Man is the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. And she lives to glorify Him, to honor, praise, and invest Him with dignity. Now that brings a whole new meaning to that phrase that has been used to to do so much hurt. Wives, submit to your husbands. Because now it means that the wife treats her husband as more important than herself. But it means the same thing for the men. He glorifies the wife and treats her as more important than himself. He's not in control. She's not in control. They are there to serve each other as equals who are striving to show the world what God looks like. There's no power struggle in the Trinity. Well, what does that mean? That means that whenever Kelly and I are trying to decide where to eat, where to go for dinner, I want to go to her favorite place. (laughs) It means that when she's cold and I'm warm, that I go over and turn the heat up rather than turn the AC up. And we're going to see in coming weeks, it means that as a head of the family, I'm totally responsible for all that goes on in my house. But every decision that I make, I am supposed to make with Kelly's glory in mind. Every decision I make is supposed to be made in such a way that honors and praises and invests my wife with glory, dignity. Imagine, just imagine the impact that we can have on this community if that whole attitude permeates our homes and spills over into our church and then begins to pour out these doors and windows in any of those people out there that expect anything but honor and praise and investing from dignity from the church. That's what we're called to do. We're called to emulate the Trinity in our personal relationships, and that's why understanding the doctrine of the Trinity is important. Let's pray. We have... uh, We've had an exhausting uh, week of blessing, <laughs> haven't we? Uh, we've had an incredible time this week. We had a beautiful uh, memorial reception for Ken Burns and the Burnham family. And, uh, we had a memorial service for Brian Smith yesterday. Um, we were we were packed out, standing room only yesterday, and we've got a group of people who poured themselves out in service to loved ones in this community, and they're exhausted, and they would appreciate your prayers, but just know that the Spirit of God is moving at Warrenton Bible Fellowship. Amen? I want to talk to you for the next three weeks about the Trinity. That's um, a word that we're all familiar with. We, we, we've heard it before. Uh, one, a lot of us have struggled. We've, we've pondered. Right? We've, we've thought about it. We've tried to figure it out, and We've, we've tried to understand it, but it's a word that, I've got to tell you something, after, after meditating on this for perhaps years, I, I've just come to the understanding that it is impossible to comprehend the fullness of the Trinity. And let me explain why. Here, here's the doctrine of the Trinity. You've, you've heard this before. Uh, it comes in three statements. It's fairly simple to lay out. There's only one God. Uh, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. Now, that seems easy, uh, but when we start to get in there and dissect it and take it apart, we begin to discover how complex it really is. Oh, we come up with clever ways to describe it, don't we? We say things like, oh, the Trinity's like an egg. It's, there's a shell and a white and a yolk, and we, we think that that kind of does it. Uh, or we say, you know, the Trinity is like water. Uh, sometimes it's a liquid, sometimes it's a vapor, sometimes it's a solid. And those are all valiant attempts, and in human reasoning, they kind of make sense. But I've got to tell you something. They fall woefully short of what the Trinity actually is. When I sat on my ordination council, a uh, guy was there. Uh, one of the council members asked me to explain the Trinity. And I, I started to break out in a sweat. And I kind of looked down and I said, well, I, I really, I, I, I don't, it's beyond comprehension. And my faithful friend, Bill Kynes, my moderator said, well, why don't you give it a shot, John? And, and I, I started to sweat more. Uh, and finally I said, it, it's impossible to understand. And later on, Bill said that was the right answer. Thank you. And so it, it is beyond our comprehension and let's let's just look at why. There's only one God. We we get that, you know that that we all understand. There's only one God. It is the what the Jews call the Shema. Uh, the, the the Lord our God is one God. Um, you know, you should love Him with all of your strength and all of your might. Uh, we get that. But then we go into God is three persons. Okay, that's getting a little bit harder. And what that tells us is that uh, our one God is made up of three uniquely identified persons. Okay, well, that's a little harder, but maybe maybe if we stretch our minds a little bit, we can we can begin to get our arms around that idea. Perhaps, you know, as we start to think about it, it you know, we, we think, well, maybe it's some kind of council of equals that meets on a regular basis, or, or maybe... Maybe it's like a movie I saw, like the Band of Brothers, you know, one for all and all for one, a three musketeers type thing. And, you know, those aren't good descriptions either. They don't really work when, when we start digging deeper into this. But honestly, up to this point, most of us pretty much believe that we can figure it out somehow. We just think long enough, and it's that, it's that last line. It's that last line that sends us over the top. It's that last line that challenges human reason. Each person is fully God. That means that each member of the Trinity or each one of them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're fully God. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, each, and and that idea just kind of overwhelms us. It over, overloads our sensory, uh, you know, our, our hard drive gets full at that particular point. Uh, each member of the Trinity is fully God with all of his attributes, all of his nature, all of his power, all of his authority. And the list just goes on and on and on. We're going to explore this for the next three weeks. We're going to take a close look at it. This week our sermon is God the Father and then next week it'll be God the Son and on September 4th it'll be God the Holy Spirit but we're not going to talk about God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. You know, that's just kind of our anchor to hold everything together and and, and keep in mind that God is the Father, God is the Son and God is the Holy Spirit. Rather than that, we're going to look at at rather than looking at the individual members, we're going to get up front and personal with how the Trinity functions, as close as we come to understanding that. We're going to look very closely at the nature of this totally unique and mind-bending relationship in what is known as the Godhead, uh, the Trinity. So don't let the titles fool you. We're going to see how the persons of the Trinity work with each other, and then we're going to take a look each Sunday at how that should impact us as Christians. So uh, we're going to look this week at God the Father and, uh, and how He and God the Son and God the Holy, Trinity, uh, Holy Spirit are equals as persons, and I hope to demonstrate to you uh, in all of this the, the sheer equality in the Trinity. Next week we'll look at the mission of each person in the trinity and on the third week we'll look at the unity that the trinity has so we're going to look at a lot of scripture uh, you can thumb through your bibles if you like uh, i do have a handout prepared if you didn't get one when you came in raise your hand it's a little half sheet in lieu of a bulletin if i get somebody to hand that out to audrey um, that will give you all of the all of the scripture references that we'll use today make it, maybe make it a little easier to keep up So I do encourage you to keep your Bibles open, though, and double-check what the references I give you. So the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal to God the Father. They're equal to God the Father in eternity, in their nature, and in their status amongst each other. Within the Trinity, the Father is the head. So we'll see structure on this as we go over the next couple weeks. He's kind of the first amongst equals. the Son and the Holy Spirit do the Father's will, glorifying Him and making known, uh, making Him known. And the Holy Spirit glorifies uh, and makes known the Son. Now, that, that's our conventional understanding of that, but again, that can be a little bit misleading because that doesn't really sound much like equality to us. So, because we all have a tendency, when we hear about headship and we hear about The head. We all have a tendency to think that the head has all the power and all the the authority. Now, I think that's one of the mistakes we make in our homes and our families, thinking that the head of the home is the one who possesses the power and authority, the one who controls everything. So I want to look at how this works in the Trinity. So first, understand this. Within the structure of the Trinity, with the Father as a head, Scripture tells us that the Son is equal to the Father. Scripture tells us that the Son is equal to the Father. So John 5.18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, Jesus is not calling God the Father here, as in he's the Father of all creation. He's describing a unique relationship that he has with the Father. The Jews have understood Jesus to say that he was of the same nature as the Father. And that's kind of blasphemy as far as the Jews were concerned. Now, Jesus makes all this very clear five verses later, uh, starting with verse 22, when he says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Honoring the Son and the Father are the same thing. It denotes equality. Furthermore, the Son judges, not the Father. Now, hold on to that idea. The Son judges, not the Father. And, and we'll go to John eight sixteen, where Jesus says, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Well, that sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? Jesus says the Father doesn't judge, but when I do judge, it is I and the Father who judge. See, that's only confusing if you're trying to figure out what the difference between the Father and the Son is and make these distinguishing characteristics. What Jesus is saying is that the Father and the Son are the same, yet he identifies them as two persons. He's the Son, and God is the Father. There are are more references in your outline. You can take a look at that. But if you take a look at Paul's letter to uh, Colossians in chapter 2, we can find the defining statement about Jesus Christ and his relation to the Trinity. So, because it says of him in verse 9, for in him, Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of, of godliness dwells in Christ. Now, this, of course, is where we get the idea that Jesus was fully man and fully God. He was the Son of Man, and he was the Son of God. He represented man in the same manner that Adam did, but Jesus undid the wrong that Adam committed. And he was able to do that because he was perfect and holy. He carried the nature of God himself within him. Unless Jesus was fully man, he wouldn't have been able to die in our place. Unless he's fully God, he could not forgive sins. He cannot redeem men. He could not gain victory over sin and death. So he's fully man and fully God. Don't let that get by you. It's an important point. He wasn't a man at some times and a God at other times. He didn't phase in and out of being a man and a God. He was always fully a man, and at all times, he was fully God. He wasn't God's tool. He's not God's implement, and although he obeyed God, he was not God's servant. He was in all ways equal to God. Well, for those of you who know your scripture, some of you may be saying right now, well, John, how do you explain Philippians 2.6 and what it says about Jesus? Here's what it says. Jesus, par- parenthetically, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now, a lot of us go, see, Jesus didn't want to be equal with God. But we've got to look a little closer at that because this verse is frequently misunderstood. Look at it. It starts out with, though he was in the form of God, though he was already in the form, in the nature of God, and the word for grasp here means to seize, sometimes seize with violence, to take by force. I want to give you the Kavakas paraphrase of this verse here. Jesus didn't have to reach out and seize equality with God because he already was equal with him. He already had his nature. So we see that the son is equal to the father. You can see it additionally in most of the greetings of the epistles. It's there where Jesus and the father are mentioned as recipients of glory and honor and and praise. Uh, You can see it in most of the doxologies that appear in the New Testament where they're treated as equals. So we see that. I want to take a look at the Holy Spirit for a few minutes. Because the Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now that's not just a nice ending to a letter. There's a strong theological statement in there. And it takes some thinking if we're going to see the equalities in here as well. Paul had just chastised chastised again the Corinthian church in chapter 12, and he's trying to make sure there's no room for pride or quarrels in that church. The Corinthians have been redeemed, he reminds them, by a work of Trinitarian unity, by a work of Trinitarian equality. They've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, which allows them to experience the love of God and draws them into fellowship with the Holy Spirit, with and through the Holy Spirit. We have the entirety of the Godhead functioning as it has always functioned from before the foundations of the earth, using godly attributes in harmony and in unity and equality to bring glory to God and to bring salvation to men. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in complete equality with God and the Son. We see the same thing in the Great Commission. Jesus has given his charge to the disciples and his followers. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we commonly focus on the go therefore portion of this verse. And that's right, we should do that. It is a charge to carry the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. But I want you to look at how believers are to be baptized. Now, we've talked about this before. Frequently, when we hear the word baptized, we start thinking about the sacrament. And that's right, that's a good thing to think about when we hear about baptism uh, as believers, we are all to be baptized. But I'm not sure that the people in the first century were thinking of the sacrament of baptism It hadn't been officially ordained yet. Okay? I think when they heard, hear the word baptized, they thought immersion. They thought about being soaked. They thought about being dunked from your head to your foot in whatever they're talking about being baptized in. So what we're hearing here is that that. Believers should be baptized in the name, the singular name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that alone is not a problem if we view names the way Western minds view names that it's some kind of label that you wear. But if you start thinking about what an Eastern mind thinks about a name, because they believe that a name personifies the person, that it embodies all that person is, all that makes him up what he is, the, the, his background, his character, his nature, a name is far more than just a label to the Eastern mind. Look what this verse tells us if we look at it that way. It says to baptize, to immerse, to soak disciples in the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one nature, one essence. Three persons in one God. Three equal persons in one God. And we see the unity, the equality, and the harmony of the Trinity in Peter's writings as well. First Peter 1-2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood may grace and peace be multiplied to you. If you look at that closely, you see, you see how the Trinity works together. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies so that the believer can be obedient and uh, obedient to Christ and the, and the result puts God's grace on display all with equal parts and the work of all three Without the equal parts of the work of all three, the plan of redemption falls apart. So the Holy Spirit is always portrayed as being equal. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just pause for a second because I've already laid a lot on you, but I I, I hope this has given you something to think about. And as we continue in the next few weeks when we look at each part of the, 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 the members of the Trinity and the parts they play in the Trinity, we'll see that there's, there's indeed some structure there, and we have to acknowledge that. We'll see uh, that the, the way we interpret that structure, if we're not very careful, can lead to problems, a lot of which can be avoided if we strive to understand this one point, that the members of the Trinity glorify, each other okay so we'll get that in just a second but first I want to talk to you about what glorify means uh, it has a spiritual connotation and we should recognize it as being spiritual we should recognize it as being something supernatural but in in a very real sense of the world in a pragmatic sense it spirit Zodiatis, the greek scholar says that glorify means this to honor praise invest with dignity to give anyone esteem or honor by putting him in an honorable position. Now that's a good, simple explanation for what it means to glorify. And that's an important definition for us to remember. You need to write this down somewhere. You need to keep it on file. I'll explain why this is really important in just a bit. Because this is the key this is the key to how the members of the Trinity relate to each other. So Scripture tells us how the Son glorifies the Father. That's where we're going to start. The Son glorifies the Father. Jesus brings glory to the Father just by being Jesus. So, in Romans sixteen twenty-seven, it says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The glory God receives comes through His Son. Now we understand that, but look at this. John fourteen thirteen. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. God is not only glorified through Jesus Christ, He is glorified... In Jesus Christ, in who Christ is, in everything Christ does, God is glorified. God doesn't just get the glory, God is glorified in Christ. In other words, whatever glorifies Christ glorifies God. Paul tells us this in Philippians in chapter two, verse 11, "And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In 1 Peter, we see this in 4.11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I like that. Jude carries it a step further in verse 25 of Jude. To the only God, our Savior, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Did you hear that? Not only the glory that the Father receives comes through Christ, but the majesty, the dominion, and the authority as well. And not only that, but they always have come through Christ. It's not a new development. So our scriptures, our scriptures are just replete with references of the Father giving glory to the Son, and the Son giving glory to the Father. Father and Son glorify one another. And John's gospel lays that point out very clearly. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Okay, let that, let that just sink in for a moment. Because we need to think about this and try to see if it fits with the commonly held idea that one is in charge over the other. Uh, one is bigger or more important than the other, one has more power or more influence than the other, because that becomes our model for the Trinity, doesn't it? But that template doesn't hold up very well. It, it just doesn't work. In everything we've heard so far, we see the Father and the Son mutually glorifying each other. John quotes Jesus as saying, Father, glorify your Son. Father, honor, praise, and invest with dignity your Son, that He may honor, praise, and invest with dignity you. Earlier in the book of John, we hear Jesus say this, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Again, in John 13, we see this. When He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Boy, follow that one through. When the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. But we also see that the Father will glorify Himself in Jesus. And, and then again, we, we see that oneness between the Father and the Son. We see that equality again. What happens to one happens to the other. What one does to the other, he does to himself. Not only that, but the Father and the Son share the same glory. And they've shared it from before the beginning of time. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 17:4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Clearly, the Father and the Son glorify each other. Well, what about the Spirit? Well, the Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son as well. The Spirit honors, praises, and invests with dignity uh, the Father and the Son. Again, we go back to John's gospel here, sixteen thirteen. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Another complex verse. Well, let me try and break it down into some simple elements here. verse tells that Spirit doesn't work independently from the Father and the Son. He doesn't have a different authority than the Father and Son has. He doesn't speak with an authority other than the authority the Father and the Son has as well. What he hears when he speaks, he speaks what he hears from the Father and the Son. And in this case, what he hears is what he knows, what he comprehends. In other words, The 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 Spirit is going to come and proclaim what he knows, which is the same thing that the Father and the Son knows, and he's going to do it with the authority of the Father and the Son. So, looking at John fifteen, we hear this But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, if you look at that verse, you notice it's Spirit. Comes with a capital S. Denotes that it's a person. The helper starts with a capital H again. Denotes that it's a person. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Spirit comes out from the Father. Is one with the Father. Has the nature of the Father. The Spirit will do what? He will bear witness about the Son. He will honor, praise, and invest with dignity the Son. He will glorify the Son. Paul weighs in on this issue as well in Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the Spirit brings glory to the Father and the Son. But remember this. The Spirit is one with the Father and the Son. The Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son. God is three persons. The Spirit is one of the three persons that God is. So the work of the Spirit does in glorifying the other two persons of the Trinity brings glory to the Spirit as well. Okay, everybody got that? I know that's pretty heavy. Here's what we've seen so far. The doctrine of the Trinity. There's only one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There's equality in the Godhead. Three equal persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is equal to the Father. Uh, The Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son. The Son glorifies the Father, the Son and the Father glorify each other, and the Spirit glorifies the Father and Son. You have this incredible synergy that's going on between the three members of the Godhead. I like that. Anybody that's spent any time at Panera with me knows I like to talk about theology. So what? What what does this mean to us? What do you do with something like this? You know, is this just an academic exercise? What impact could just cracking the lid on the Trinity possibly have on my daily life? Let me tell you something. We would be making a mistake if we reduce this to a doctrinal point. If we reduce this to some head understanding about God and the the Scriptures we make making a mistake. We say it doesn't have a lot to do with me and how I live my life because because it does. First, first, it impacts how we perceive each member of the Trinity. And we would be wrong to overemphasize one member of the Trinity over the other. Uh, you know, there are a lot of churches in the area. There are a lot of godly people sitting in service Sunday morning right now. Uh, We had an uh, an opportunity to interact with a number of local churches over the last week. We saw good, godly people, uh, people who are saved, people that differ from us a little bit doctrinally, uh, people that that maybe we don't agree on all of the non-essential points of doctrine, but I can tell you something for most of the people that I met this week that came wandering in here, I know they're going to be in heaven regardless of whether or not we understand the Trinity the same way or not. Because we see Jesus Christ in them. We see transformation in them. So the problem that we have is we begin to categorize and pigeonhole things. And so we need to be careful. We would be wrong to make our relationship with God about the Holy Spirit and what He brings to the table, how He can help us, how He gifts us. Now, we understand that would be wrong. That's out of balance. But We would be just as wrong if we understand everything we just heard to relegate the Spirit to something that happened a long time ago and is no longer functioning. It's the same mistake. We would be wrong to make our relationship with God about Jesus and how He loves everybody and nothing else. There are any number of teachings out there that are very attractive and sound really great that tell you, well, it's all Jesus plus nothing. You don't need anything but Jesus. All you need is Jesus. All you need is love, and everything will be fine. All of those are out of balance. And they're out of balance because of what we've just seen in the Trinity. We would be wrong to think that the relationship in the Trinity uh, has anything to do with power and authority and control. Remember this. Paul tells us, what? That we are to emulate Christ. Most of us, and I've got to be honest with you, you know, I, I've spent time with a lot of you, and I know most of us really want to do that. We have a desire to be like Christ. We want to we be conformed to His image. We want to be shaped. We want to be like Him. Amen, praise God. But if we think that the relationships in the Trinity are to be like the relationships in our lives, well, you know what, if we just stop right there, yes, that's true. The relationships in our lives should be like the Trinity. Uh, So that's correct, but it is incorrect to think that all this is about control and power. If we think that, then we're going to miss the truth about the Trinity. We're going to miss the richness of God, and we're going to miss the richness that God wants us to experience in our personal relationships. Because if we truly understand the Trinity and that it's made up of three equal persons, all of whom glorify each other, then we will understand that they are equals who are serving each other. Did you hear that? They're equals that are serving each other. They're equals that are seeking to honor, praise, and invest dignity in each other. And that, that becomes the guidelines for our personal relationships. See, if we understand that, a lot of other things start to fall into place. We begin to fully grasp what it means to treat each other as more important than ourselves we begin to understand that because my job is to honor praise and bring din- dignity to my brothers and sisters in Christ we begin to understand what it means to love one another as God loved us to love one another as we love ourselves we begin to understand what it means to strive to glorify each other rather than to control each other. And nowhere, nowhere is this more important than in our homes where I believe a lot of damage has been done by trying to portray headship as control and authority when in reality what we've seen here today, it's about glorifying each other. It's about being glorified by each other. Paul tells us that man is the glory of God. I like that as a man. I like to hear that I'm the glory of God. But I've got to see the next phrase as well, which says that woman is the glory of man. I don't know that we've been taught to teach each other that each other is each other's glory. I know sometimes I feel like your glory... And I get disappointed when you don't treat me that way. And that's when the Spirit snaps me up the head and says, are you doing the same thing? No, I'm expecting more. See, this is what's being described in this relationship in the Trinity. If that sinks in, if that sinks into our hearts and our minds, then the father and the husband of a household as head of the family works to honor, praise, and invest with dignity his wife. He lives to glorify her, and she lives to glorify him, to honor, praise, and invest each other with glory. It brings an all-new meaning to the phrase, wives submit to your husbands, doesn't it? I mean... We live in a culture that takes that as an offense. God says, No, my glory is in that. Well, as a husband, I like that. The wife is to treat the husband as more important than herself. But it means the same thing for the man. He's a treat the wife as more important than himself. He glorifies his wife, treats her as more important than himself. He's not in control. She's not in control. They're serving each other as equals who are striving to show the world what God looks like. Okay, I like that. What does it mean? How does it look on a day-to-day basis? I'll tell you how it looks. It means when Kelly and I are trying to figure out where to go for dinner, that I pick her favorite place, not mine. That sounds simple, but it's a beginning. I want to go to her favorite place. It means that when she's cold and I'm warm, is anybody familiar with this situation? (laughs) Instead of turning the AC up, I turn the heat up. It means I defer to her. It means I serve her. And we're going to see in the coming weeks it means that as head of the family I am indeed responsible for all that goes on. I will be accountable. But every decision that I make if I'm doing this right is made with Kelly's glory in mind. Every decision I make is made in such a way that honors and praises and invests her with dignity. Imagine Just think about this. I want you to think about this this afternoon. When some of those familiar tensions begin to rise up. Think about it. Am I treating this person as my glory? Because you know what? They are. (laughs) We don't really... This is not an optional thing. They are. So am I investing them with honor and praise? and dignity. That's what God calls us to do because that's how the members of the Trinity relate to each other. And this is, not, this is not God's self-improvement plan for us. This is not a path to a happier marriage because if we can get this right at home and it can pour through us when we deal with the people who are closest to us, then it will pour out of us and into a community that needs the resolution to their tensions and the remedy for their sin you see God teaches us this so that we can put him on display so that we can be his messengers so that the people will look upon us and go what a fine God they have I see something in them that I don't see in myself it takes work it takes conscious effort not going to be some magic change that that occurs over us, but the more we're diligent to pursue it, the more the Holy Spirit will assist us in doing it. Amen? Let's pray.